So, I think by the time this comes out, which is because I mean we always record live, you know, <laughs> February twelfth, the twelfth. So it's I think it's almost been a month since our last episode. Yeah. So that means where have we been? So we'll try to speed around these to get through it. Um, do you want to talk about where you've been? <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean I I got uh, COVID. Yeah. Back in January, and that that took me out of commission for a while, and then you had your own kind of brush with it. Oh gosh, <laughs> I mean, yeah. What basically happened was Andy got COVID, and that sucked. And I was like, the the podcast does not matter matter at the moment because we just we didn't make sure you're back up to health, and we'll yeah. figure it out once you get back to being healthy again. And while you were getting healthier. I was visiting my parents, and as I was visiting my parents, my mom tested positive for COVID. So then I quarantined there for a week, got a test, tested negative, came back here, back in my house in Indy, and then quarantined for another week. And I was like, listen, let's just wait until we get out of this whole thing all together. And I was asymptomatic and negative the entire time, but I was just being super safe because I was like, this is weird. This is wild. Right. Well, and and then in the next week, or not next week, last week, we were kind of, you know, in the clear finally. We were both had the signals behind us and then the winter storm hit. And we were like, well, let's maybe not be trying to cram this in right now. Yeah. And so we thought like, yeah, let's give it some time. Give us some more time to really think about the films now that we've seen all three of them. And in the process of in between our last episode and now, a couple things that have also happened. (laughs) I mean, one personal thing is by the time this comes out, my review of The Death on the Nile, which is the sequel to Kenneth Branagh's Hercule Poirot films. I don't even think I said that, right? <laughs> I think I just... I don't even think I Kenneth Branagh says that, right? I don't, I don't know if he does, but um, it's the sequel, or at least his sequel to his 2017's Murder in the Orient Express. Yeah. My review's out now. Short terms, it's I, I really enjoyed it. Oh, I really? personally think it's better than the first one, but at the oh, same time... That's genuinely surprising to me. I, trust me, I was just as surprised. <laughs> I will say that it's slow. Yeah. Like, I definitely was like, wow, I feel like we've just hit the hour mark, yeah. and I'm surprised we haven't gotten to the big part about this story, but uh, <laughs> it's a lot of character stuff. Surprisingly, a lot more emotional pool. Yeah. Because, like, I think one of my biggest things about Murder on the Org Express, at least Brana's version, is I just think his version of Perot is a fucking cartoon. Yeah. I just could not connect as well. And He reminds me of Steve Martin's uh, Inspector Pink Clouseau Panther. and Pink, yeah, Panther, Pink Panther, yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. But uh, in this in this most recent one, he uh, it's a lot more emotional. Yeah. He, he plays it really well, which was surprising to be like, I'm emotionally invested in this goofy, mustached detective with OCD yeah. and... Yeah, I mean, it's overall, I think the thing is, I really enjoyed it. I think it's a bit better than Murder on the Orient Express, but I think this film is ultimately cursed because of the amount of budget it has, <laughs> and I don't think it's going to make, it's apparently a $90 million film, mm. and it's releasing in February, almost two years since its initial release date, right, yeah. and also there are at least, unless I'm missing some, like, Three controversial actors involved in some way, <laughs> shape, or form in this film. Yeah. One, including being Army Hammer, who is smack dab in the middle of this yeah. because he's a big part of this film. Did you film. get any impression that they did any 
post editing around him. Apparently, they of... made a statement during I think between their 2020 and their 2021 release date where it's like they just admitted they couldn't. Yeah, they just it's couldn't like, change well, anything. The movie's done. <laughs> and I watched the film. There's no way they could have changed it. No. Unless yeah, it's he's not, too critical to it. Yeah, yeah, it's he's literally like one of the main suspects yeah. in terms of like, oh, well, they this could be anybody. They could have CGI'd him out and put Kevin Spacey in as his character. <laughs> that was the thing too. Is like, <laughs> I was thinking like the only way this could work is if his entire performance was in one room. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Just get it's, Christopher Plummer to yeah. come in and play the role. But if you if you liked Orient Express, I would say the the mystery is a lot easier to solve this time around. It's a little oh, okay. bit slower, but overall, it's a, it's more engaging. Yeah, and it's pretty. I mean, there were yeah, definitely okay. moments where it's like, that's entirely a green screen. I get that. Is there enough but champagne to fill the Nile? It's enough champagne to fill the Nile. Gal Gadot was not wrong. <laughs> so are you telling uh, me that Ryan Johnson should be shaking in his boots absolutely as we approach Absolutely not. Honestly, that's, that's what I'll... I'm, I mean, I bring it up in my review, but it's like... When Murder of the Orient Express comes out, it's 2017, mm-hmm. and it's like, oh, this is a novel that came out in 35, mm-hmm. like mid to late 1930s. So it's like, of course, this is a classic story, but like, this is a old story as well. Yeah. And then now we live in a post Knives Out world where Knives Out literally did an entire, almost like a, a big deconstruction of the type of whodunits that Christie yeah. wrote, but in a loving way. Yeah. And, and also made it fun for and, like a modern era. Yeah. Also made it better than, I would say, made it better than both Murder on the Orient Express and Death on the Nile. <laughs> so it's like. So now it's like, yeah, they're yeah. they're no longer equipped to. Yeah, I could this be version in, of these stories. I could be entirely wrong when I say this. I feel like uh, Knives Out Two is going to be the better Who Done It, just <laughs> by default. And yeah. I'm curious to see that film, especially now that Netflix has it and yeah. spent a godly amount of money for the rights. <laughs> yeah. But uh, I was kind of hoping Knives Out Two would, and I mean maybe it will, but so far they're still sticking with Knives Out Two. I was kind of hoping it would just have like a, a different title entirely. Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean. But. There's so we've seen literally people were freaking out about seeing like five seconds in the Netflix sizzle reel yeah. for their original film, which, which is funny. How did you feel about that sizzle reel? Oh, we went to, I mean, I thought it was fine. Yeah. I, I think like, I think all the actual footage we saw, it was like that. This is oh okay, cool, yeah. cool. Yeah. It was the, it was the cut-ins to like people talking to the screen. Yeah. Where where they like, like clearly reshot. Yeah. certain shots from or maybe they shot them at the time during production but like yeah the, the <laughs> actors turning to the screen in character and yeah basically just advertising netflix to you yeah but it was a little off-putting but yeah it also i think i guess personally took took me out of like certain projects where it's like oh i can't believe oh that's cool all three of those people are in there and now they're talking to me and that's yeah, weird it makes it feel a little more like a product when yeah. a lot of those movies are really you know, interesting and seem uh-huh. like cool projects. Yeah, like, I mean... I wasn't necessarily thinking Netflix when I was previously thinking about those movies, but now I can't can't separate Netflix oh, from yeah. them. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, but I think the last thing we should talk about is the Oscar nominations have also come out yeah. since this episode is... Since we're recording this episode, and in all honesty, at least for me personally, I think they're pretty, like, strong across the board in terms of, like, what I expected to be up there. Sure. I was surprised by the amount of CODA nominations, which yeah. I think there should be more. In my opinion, you get rid of Chastain for Tammy Faye, you put on uh, Amelia Jones yeah. from CODA, and I think that would be great. Um, 
I think overall seeing Don't Looked Up every time was just like, okay, whatever. I mean, yeah. as long as it doesn't win anything, I would be fine with that. But <laughs> Yeah, honest, uh, honestly, it's I, – I, yeah, I thought it was a pretty fair spread. There were some movies that were unfortunately snubbed, but most of them were kind of easy to see coming. Yeah, uh, you know, Mass never really had a chance. Which is which Oscars, was absolutely the biggest bummer. Which is a shame because of yeah. I mean, obviously we loved that movie, but it was also the talk of the town yeah. way back in October, yeah. November. Um and, 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 and I think it just came too early, honestly. And also my number one film of last year got absolutely nothing. <laughs> which is just I mean, it's not entirely surprising. Yeah. I think Again, when I say fairly strong, it's a lot of it in terms of like expectations. Yeah. Where it's like, like we're now both at this we're both Andy and I are at a point in terms of how big fans we are of film that our love of films do not write on whether or not they win awards. That's never right, yeah. mattered really. It's only mattered in the span of like, will more people see this now because of the recognition or because yeah. of this and Well and and both of us being relatively you know young people and you know constantly growing our collection of movies we've watched modern and classic and kind of constantly broadening our horizons i feel like every year i just kind of grow the 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 academy awards increasingly i think uh i don't know disappoint me or or don't resonate with me not because the academy is really getting worse or anything but mm-hmm. just because i'm ex- i'm exposing myself to other things yeah and seeing more movies and seeing everything that's out there so then when i get to the kind of obvious or you know uh, lackluster picks that they go with because they're popular or because they were well marketed is like well okay mm-hmm. i i saw that coming but <laughs> now i don't really have a stake in this yeah i mean at least to me i was just like if it's a if it's an effects or technical aspect give yeah. it to dune um in terms of it, it was one of those things where it's like in terms of best actor i can't remember i know i i think I re- best actress is going to Kristen stewart probably i think it's yeah. pretty much already in the bag because literally i mean you said it to me i think anyone i've seen talk about that film is whether you like that film or not, pretty much everyone agrees that she's like yeah, she the best part about it. it. Yeah, yeah, she fully she understood the assignment and gave an A plus performance. <laughs> right. Even if the project itself isn't overall an A plus. Right. And so it's like, yeah, that would make a lot of sense. Yeah, I think uh, if anything other than uh, Power of the Dog wins Best Picture, I'll be surprised. Um, just yeah, because I mean, yeah, that it's has getting won a lot of literally love. everything else and has been yeah. it's I mean and every single one of the main actors has been nominated yeah. now which is wild yeah and I like that a lot I just was completely caught off guard by that yeah which means Cumberbatch has did Cumberbatch win for mm, I don't think he's won has he I don't for know I think he's been nominated I think once at least but yeah. I think this might be where he wins. Yeah, I think, I, unf- I, I mean, think unfortunately, I do think this is going to be another example of Denzel not winning. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I think overall that the nominations, I think with the one that caught me the most off guard, because, again, this feels very much like this would have been an easy Oscars nomination, but they did not pick it, is the Encanto, <laughs> the Encanto song choice for Best Original Song was We Don't Talk About Bruno. 
Yeah. It's a it's a song that I do not want to butcher because I've already butchered a name already <laughs> in this episode alone. Yeah. And it's a, it's an early episode. I don't want <laughs> I want to save my time so I might butcher a name. But it was just like I saw that and I was like, wow. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that's the one that every, you know, it's all over social media and the internet and everybody's got that song stuck in their yeah. head. But. I'm just, I just don't want it to win best picture, uh, best animated feature personally. Yeah. I, I, again, if I mean, you it's like one in, that it's like, it, yeah, it's, it's a good movie. It's hard to say that it's not, would, um, but it's another kind of example from Disney, you know, or Pixar, you know, obviously this one's just Disney, but like yeah. where it's like, yep, it was a good movie. I, I don't really want to pick you to win this award, no. though. It'd if be it's a boring not, winner. Like, my my honorary... I want the Mitchells versus the Machines to win so bad. <laughs> but I also would, would take Flea. That yeah, would be cool to Flea see Flea cool win. Because I know a lot of people have loved Flea. It's one of the films I couldn't see by the time we did our best of. And yeah. pretty much anyone who's seen it has said, like, yeah, it's really good. Yeah. And I, it's also different. It's a different type of animation style, which I really do appreciate. And mm-hmm. and also, I'm going to be honest, Luke is better than Encanto. That's all I need to really say about that. I mean, <laughs> I'm trying, I mean, yeah, it's. I'm curious to see if anything else comes out of this. If there's, yeah, I think you said it right before we started recording, where it was just like, it was it. It was inoffensive, like yeah. their choices. Um, I I really want the dad from Coda to win for best supporting oh, yeah, actor. I might that. cry if he does because he's incredible in that film, and yeah. I'd love. Would that be the first time? No, it wouldn't be the first time an ASL or a, a, a deaf a deaf actor won an award. I don't think. Maybe supporting it actor might though. I don't know. Be. Yeah, but I just I think yeah I'll have my I'll have my few that I have my I guess my dog in the fight, but overall I'll just be like. Let's hope the ceremony's not bad. Yeah. <laughs> and that's pretty much it. Yeah, honestly. But uh, anything else? Just go right into it? I don't think so. Yeah. Oh, before. Perfect. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's felt so long since I've done this, so I'll be I'll apologize <laughs> if I'm rusty. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Odd Trilogies with Logan and Andy. I'm Logan. And I'm Andy. And today on Odd Trilogies, we are talking about a trilogy that has been in the works, at least for both of us, for a bit. And... We thought after doing the Matrix sequels, we thought we could do, a, I think, a trilogy that fits that good, the bad, and the weird surrounding it. And thankfully, with this trilogy, there's not a lot of uh, bad to it. Yeah. We are talking about today the rise of Jim Cummings, or as Andy will not let me put on the <laughs> design, the rise of Cummings. <laughs> we are going to be talking about writer, director, producer, actor even if he doesn't call himself that he is an actor yeah jim cummings we are talking about his three directorial films which are 2018's thunder road 2020's the wolf of snow hollow and 2021's the beta test yeah kind of a a triple threat triple feature if you will and that he wrote directed and starred in all three of them and all three vastly different in a lot of ways. Exclude, I would say, excluding his performance. Yeah, his, he, he's, which is a, not a bad thing. No, no, no. But there's definitely a consistency to the kind of character he plays in these three movies. Yeah, and I mean, um, a, a bit of background on Cummings, which you can also chime in whenever. Sure. Um, Cummings was born in Halloween in 1986. He was born in New Orleans. 
he I think I I will not trust Wikipedia in terms of where he went to college because one of the things about Jim Cummings is we both try to do our own research yeah. and we really couldn't find in terms of a lot of talking about his actual life prior to being a director yeah. per se. And I mean, again, we were just kind of looking for like the big articles. And again, he's such an independent director yeah, that I he, don't think a lot of that has yeah. come too much to light yet. But for what I found personally, he was a teacher in San Francisco around tw- in the like early 2010s. He was going through a divorce and decided at a certain point that he wanted to start making movies because he was always a fan of movies and he had people, he had friends in LA. So he moved to North Hollywood in 2014, started doing short films, and that leads up to 2016 where he makes a short called Thunder Road. Yeah. I mean, he makes it, he makes shorts way before that. I mean, from 2014 to 2016, he makes a bunch of shorts, but Thunder Road is the first time I think he gets a big. Uh, bump in terms of his popularity as well as just his his work right. as a director. Yeah, but um, and Thunder Road is like a <coughs> it's like a one scene uh, short film. Of- it's yeah, it's a thirteen minute one shot that's basically the beginning of the actual feature film. Yeah, where it's yeah. Uh, the Thunder Road itself is about a cop with anger issues dealing with the grief surrounding the death of his mother while also trying to be a good father and unfortunately not doing as well as he wished he could. (laughs) Yeah. And And so he's kind of, it's kind of a, a breakdown or a a emotional breakdown over the course mm -hmm. of 90 minutes. (laughs) Yeah. And I, and I think it's cause I was very fascinated in terms of the fact that we've already alluded to the fact that all three of these films have, very kind of similar performances and main performances from Cummings in terms of how he executes those characters, which he wrote. I mean, yeah. he, I mean, he co-wrote and uh, the beta test, of course, but it still is just full on Cummings in that. Yeah. And he talks about in the article that I read around the time the beta test came out or was about to come out in festivals was that he basically took on those roles because he felt weird and thought that a lot of people would just not want to do it because those roles are so humiliating, they're so vulnerable, they're abrasive. so earnest, abrasive. abrasive. Yeah. Like he basically became the lead actor in his own movies because he felt like <laughs> nobody else wanted. No to one do else it. wanted to do that, and he could he could bring that energy. Yeah, and I think the best way he said it is like he doesn't consider himself a good actor or a great actor, but he knows what great acting is. Sure. Yeah. Which I think is extremely it. humble in that way. Cause I think I genuinely think he's as far as we've seen him great. Yeah. I think he's a really he's, good actor. Yeah, I think um, he, he brings it each time in one of these, every single one of these films. Yeah. Like, and, and I mean, maybe, maybe he feels that, you know, he, he wouldn't be as good in, you know, somebody else's hands, but I think, like, the fact that he's got full control over the character, he wrote it, he's mm-hmm. directing it, oh, yeah. and he can embody that on screen, I think it really works for him, and he's yeah. able to kind of, I mean, yeah, even though these three characters across these three movies are very similar, um, it's a very unique and I think entertaining archetype to watch in all three movies. And he's really good at it. It's a darkly comedic character that is emotionally stunted and incapable of, you know, handling uh, traumatic emotions. mm -hmm. I think especially in thunder road, which 
Thank goodness, out of the three films we watched, this this is the first one and the saddest one, in my mm. opinion. Yeah. Because if these got sadder, I would have just been so bummed as we <laughs> went on. But Thunder Road, I think, shows just how... Well, not only how strong Cummings is behind the camera, but just how he understands the importance of balance uh, between comedy and drama. Yeah. And how something can still be funny while also awkward and kind of intense and yeah I, I think one of the key things especially in this movie but it's present present in his other two movies um is his really unique approach to dark comedy if that's what you want to call it mm-hmm. um in that he doesn't really i feel like a lot of dark comedies take a really dark subject matter and just approach it from a comedy angle just like this isn't sad it's funny yeah. Like, let's laugh at this because otherwise, you know, it would be sad. And I, I, I think the interesting thing about the way he handles that kind of intersection between tragedy and humor is that he doesn't really circumvent the the pain that's happening in the scene and the, the suffering and the empathy that you feel. Yeah. He just kind of like gives you a chance to sort of while you're watching this person go through this horrible thing, be able to step back and be like, yeah, I guess when when people go through something like this it's also kind of awkward. <laughs> yeah. Like that's it's, the reality of it. And it's yeah. kind of like a, it's kind of this resigned, you know, uh, sigh of relief kind of laughter rather mm-hmm. than like a, you know, let's laugh at this scene or ignore the pain or whatever. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's also the fact that he gets awkwardness incredibly well yeah. to the point where I think it's pretty clear that he's probably a pretty awkward person at times himself. Sure. Because like, I think of even a scene that's not even supposed to necessarily be tragic or overly funny, just like when he's at his partner's place and they're having dinner with his partner's family. Yeah. Like, that becomes funny to a degree because he's trying to strike conversation about, like, <laughs> are there any events happening in the community that I can take my daughter to, like, a farmer's market? And it's, he's talking almost... It's so, like, robotic. Yeah. But he's he's only he's just only trying his best to take in information and nothing bad come out of his mouth because he's worried that he'll throw people off. And Yeah. Well, and then eventually mm-hmm. he makes an off comment to a family of color about uh, I think his potato salad recipe and how they might like that. <laughs> so he ends up oh, and they yeah. are, oh, he gosh. ends up eventually, despite his best efforts, saying yeah. something off putting and weird. And just thinking like, what does that mean? And it's not <laughs> meant to be anything weird, it just he said it. Yeah. He's just a guy that is obviously has a lot not only just a lot of grief surrounding the death of his mother but also a bunch of unresolved issues i think surrounding yeah. his mother and his yeah. family in general and so like when you lose somebody like that you you kind of forget oh that's right none of that goes away when right. so like you're dealing with grief and all those unresolved things that were kind of like left in the air and cuz yeah. like there's a lot of there's a lot of good stuff about how his mother was very altruistic a very uh loving selfless person to the community and to mm-hmm. and like to everybody else but there's almost a hint of like because of that maybe there's a possibility which you only find out later that she just that still didn't mean she was a perfect mom or even a great mom yeah she she she, she was a, she neglected i think certain aspects of both of her children which mm-hmm. i think is a good aspect of showing how she was still uh flawed and i like that a lot about that and I think overall, it's it's a film that has no right being as sad as it is, as well as just how funny it can be as well. Yeah, I mean, it's I mean, honestly, it's it's darkest and saddest scenes 
are also, you know, some of its most awkward and kind of weirdly funny ones yeah. at the same time without I, shortchanging either the sadness or the comedy. I mean, the um, best scene to me is I would consider the only big, uh, I guess, quote-unquote, set piece in uh-huh. a film like this, which is the police station parking lot. Yeah, right. right. That whole scenario, that whole sequence is um, stressful. Yeah. It hurts your soul. But also Cummings, I don't know how he figures it out in terms of how to write these moments or if it <laughs> is on the cuff when he's doing it. But like there are just moments where it's extremely depressing and mm-hmm. just harrowing. And he just starts saying just just like, oh gosh, when he just says like uh, all these things, of this, he just says, fuck you, Jerry, just like randomly <laughs> just starts shitting on the people he's saying, I'm sorry, too. Yeah. yeah. Where he's, I think at one point he does say, like, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, but also, fuck you, you know that was bad. <laughs> and I was like, God. And it's, again, it's uh, it's another, I think, a staple you see a lot in all three of his films, but a lot of times when those scenes happen, you never see the reactions from yeah, the people watching him. him. It's all on him, and that makes it even more embarrassing and also m- sadder because yeah. it's like you don't you don't have any kind of uh, reference to kind of relate to or kind of compare your right. reaction to because you're just they won't let you cut away from this <laughs> poor man slowly dissolving mentally. Yeah, well, and I think in a, in some way it also puts you in the scene as like an observer on the location because mm-hmm. like like you know if you if you've ever witnessed firsthand somebody you know have a really extreme public reaction about something and mm-hmm. everybody's eyes are just on them you're not looking at the other people mm-hmm. watching them you're looking at the person because you can't take your eyes off them and you're like this is horrible and terrifying and sad and also i feel humiliated for this person because they're making uh an ass of themselves oh my gosh yeah he just <laughs> and that, that's like this whole mm-hmm. movie is, is i mean what's... this really maladjusted guy yeah. not not quite knowing what he's revealing about himself until after he does it like, yeah that's every scene <laughs> yeah he's he, he is he is a he is a person who was taught I very early on that showing emotions as a man is weak, but he's a very emotional guy and just at heart. So he's spent years bottling up so many emotions for so long that when they come out, they come out aggressive, they come out loud and they can be scary unless you can just see that it's someone who just does not know how to (laughs) communicate well. Right. Right. And cause like that's the whole parking lot scene is a is a man who is just like losing everything slowly and feels like he's the only one who's noticing that when in reality yes he is the only one noticing that because he doesn't talk about it he doesn't let himself yeah. well, vent yeah, he doesn't I mean, let I, himself <clears throat> there are other people supporting characters and stuff who notice it but like you said yeah he yeah, he, he kind of he doesn't shuts admit to it out. he pushes yeah. them away doesn't let them get too close yeah cuz so it's like <laughs> he's compounding his own issues by mm-hmm thinking that he has to do it alone and yeah that's of course a very common issue mm-hmm. i mean especially for for men but for everybody yeah the two people that notice the most are his partner who i think is i guess if there's anything you could give this film a critique of is i think there's a lot there with this partner that isn't could be could give more development too but is yeah. i mean he's again he's great with the the amount that he's given 
but overall, it just it just does he just is overshadowed in comparison to just Cummings' performance in general. Yeah. And then there's the police chief, who is the who's the strict one, who's like kind of I guess the only kind of parent that he has now because he's constantly yeah. being told the only real authority figure yes. in his life. And it's it's so well. I mean, it's just you. I mean, it's one of those things too, where it's like when you find out towards the end of the film, his relationship with his sister. It is one of those aspects where it's like, wow, like if you had just talked to anybody <laughs> yeah. way before this, yeah, maybe this could have been better. Yeah, I mean, because again, there's, I mean, it, it, it sounds like the film is repetitive because a lot of the scenes do have the aspect of, yeah, he he doesn't know how to communicate well, and sometimes it frustrates him enough when things start to go south that he just kind of gets angry and it kind of comes off as more violent. Yeah. Than he means it to, but like overall, it shows how strong Cummings is as a writer, and as well as directing wise, just how they can make every scene that kind of feels that way feel vastly different than each other. Right. Well, and and each of those scenes, even though they might kind of repeat the structure of you know, mm -hmm. bottle it up, lash out, realize what you've just done, move mm -hmm. on. Um, each of those scenes kind of reveals some new layer to what he's going through and what his mm -hmm. life has been like and yeah. other how other people have been influenced in his life and that sort of thing. So yeah. it is it's I think it's a really cool progression of character till you know the end you can fully accept all this all of the shortcomings that this guy has and also still, you know, feel like he deserves a chance and he's yeah. going to get that chance. And I feel, and it's yeah. By the end, it feels like he's slowly getting there, yeah. and he's gonna probably have to get there faster because a tragedy leads him to have to be the bigger man and the bigger parent in that regard. Yeah. And I will say, the tragedy at hand that happens leads to a slap, and just a slap that I've. It is just the most jarring. shocking, the most shocking slap I've ever seen in a film. <laughs> And I knew it was going to happen, and it still just made my jaw drop. And I was like, yeah. I cannot believe they went through it. They went yeah. for it, and it it's, it works. Yeah, that kind it of just, bleak, sardonic humor in yeah, the face I, of immeasurable yeah. tragedy that you're just yeah. like, holy shit. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a giggle in the darkness. It's just <laughs> like it should not work, but it's like, what the hell? Yeah. I get it, but now, wow. Yeah. Well, and there's so it's, many scenes like that where it's it's his approach to it is like you can almost you can kind of see yourself, you know, away from cameras, away from other people. If you were in that situation, you would do something similarly weird, mm -hmm. you know, but you don't see that in a movie version yeah. of that kind of event. You just, you know, that's it feels very real life in a way, even though it is goofy. It mm -hmm. feels more. I don't know, natural to me. I don't know if I would, you know, slap a dead person, but... Um. No, yeah, but uh, hey. <laughs> but, like, I'd have the impulse. You get why he I does it. I'd have the impulse in his yeah. situation, yeah. Yeah, you get why he does it, and, I mean, overall, Thunder Road is just downright great. Yeah. Like, there's there's it's not much else. incredibly good, like, feature directorial debut. I, it's extremely strong. I think I... Especially this... for $200,000. Yeah, and it looks shockingly good. I mean, all three of these movies 
look incredible for their budget. I mean, these yeah, are if, these if, are tiny budget mm-hmm. movies. If anyone ever tells you that you can't have a film that looks good unless it has at least a million dollars, I mean, two of these films in this trilogy are below that. Right. And honestly, the last one we talk about today, the beta test, I think is the best looking of his films. And I also think it's probably one of my favorite looking films of last year. Like, I just mm-hmm. think it looks so good for being what? $300,000. Yeah, so it's like, like only like a hundred, 150,000 more than his feature. Like his yeah. directorial debut. Like that's insane. It's, it shows again that like Cummings is a pretty, it seems he comes across in his interviews as a very humble, pretty uh uh well-spoken yeah. pretty um hard-working kind of self self-made type of guy where it's just like he had to learn everything <laughs> from the ground up <laughs> to a degree and worked with all of his friends to kind of work on doing stuff together and led to him yeah. just kind of understanding how to just make a good movie yeah and well, in and that process which i really like yeah something i've gotten the impression of in his in in some interviews of his is that, I mean, because he be, he he came to filmmaking so late in life. I mean, it, he was he said he was born in 1986, and he was he, he didn't even move to L.A. until 2014. He wasn't even 30 um, yet. Yeah, he was 28 by the time he even and in the, in this interview I listened to, he was like, yeah, I I watched a lot of movies growing up. I I thought they were you know really. Uh, cool and i liked them but like he didn't ever envision himself making them really mm-hmm. and didn't think about that until the situation his you know life situation you described it earlier um he was going through a divorce and, and he so, was being he was a teacher yeah and and so for him to kind of just move out to la find you know all the right people that you know he can yeah. trust and work with and mm-hmm. collaborate with it just sounds like he is he understands the collaborative nature of filmmaking and doesn't doesn't claim to make these as a one man show. Yes, um, uh, I think he was he was saying on the beta test that like he pretty much just like he would be working all hours of the day and night on like editing it, but um, because of the nature of how their office is set up, anybody could just kind of like walk in and see what he was doing and uh-huh. just comment on it or be like or he'd like they'd stop and watch the screen and he'd like watch their face to see what their reaction was like mm-hmm. and then he'd be like okay that that the one's working that one's not yeah he's so, he's very well aware like open door director yeah he's he's very well aware that like saying self-made especially in an industry like filmmaking is it sounds inherently like he's doing everything by himself in reality it's more like he's a guy that can understand who who like the kind of the humility of just admitting that he doesn't do everything and doesn't fully know everything as well as somebody else does yeah. but can work well as a creator and as a collaborator to put that together yeah. in a way that leads to a film that is as great as I think all three of these I I think I personally I know that I think Wolf of Snow Hollow is go, going right into that one that that's probably your weakest one yeah. I think out of the three yeah and um I, I completely yeah. understand it. It is my weakest too, but I still think it's pretty damn great. Yeah, I think it's a really good movie, yeah. and I, I think part of it with with Thunder Road and with the Beta Test, uh, those were both you know 
crowdfinanced, no real overhead. It was just kind of yeah. they were on their own to make it. Yeah, with Thunder Road's, oh. I mean, the big thing for Thunder Road is that the short gets a lot of love, and then the feature gets a lot of love at South by Southwest. Yeah. And then he's able to basically get a grant from Sundance to learn how to distribute a film and then makes his money back with the grant like yeah. in, in like in like one showing like in France. Yeah. And so it's like he he figures that he uses he made a big risk with Thunder Road being like, I'm gonna self distribute. I'm gonna do this. Yeah. And it worked out for him. And then surprisingly with Wolf of Snow Hollow, he has Two, two, I mean, two studios that I'm aware of, which is XYZ and Orion. Yeah. Which Orion has just like made a comeback these last couple of years. So to see yeah. a Jim Cummings production attached to like what I think of like 80s films that are, <laughs> I mean, varying degrees of quality, but think of like 80s kind of, kind of films. Yeah. yeah. I, I mean, it, it was it was kind of nice to see that as well as see a a more, a more fleshed out ensemble in this film. Um, Especially, I mean, especially Robert Forrester, which is, I think is, I think it is his last film. Yeah. Uh, before he passed away, and Ricky Lindhorn, who mm-hmm. is, uh, who's great. She's a good comedic actress, and she's also she's been. I mean, she's done a bunch of drama as well, and I think she's really good at this as yeah. a foil to Jim Cummings. And yeah, she's the one who kind of has her shit together. Yeah. <laughs> knows I what mean, she's talking about. Yeah, and I think it's a good. It, the Wolf of Snow Hollow shows that. Cummings is aware of what Thunder Road does with what it has, and then in Wolf of Snow Hollow is able to improve upon that in terms of, like, you know, the support system that the main character has, I think, is a lot better and a lot more fleshed out Yeah, in a way because you have a living you have a living family member. Yeah, <laughs> or like, right, right. He has a dad that's alive but also is on his way out, and so that brings yeah. a lot of stress to a man who is dealing with alcoholism and trying to be sober for more yeah. than five? Is it five years he says he's sober? Yeah, something like that. Which, I mean, of course. It's, he's I mean, five, working on his ten, I think is what he says. Yes, yeah. and it's a Jim Cummings character, so you know that might not be true by the <laughs> yeah, end of it. Yeah, yeah. But, yeah, I mean, it's. I like the fact that I think that this is, okay, in case you didn't know with Thunder Road and with this one, it's, I guess, a spoiler warning. We recommend all three of these films, but with yeah. this one in particular – there is stuff that comes that happens in there that'd be best not to know about per se. Yeah, it's so, a mystery. Yeah, it's a it's a horror mystery made by the guy that did Thunder Road. So of course you're gonna get like some decently good, creepy moments. Some it's about a wolf that everyone thinks is a werewolf. So you're gonna get some creature moments in there. Yeah, it's a, it's a yeah. kind of a monster movie. Yes, mixed in with Jim Cummings, just again killing it yeah this <laughs> yelling at everybody that is just in his way <laughs> and it's so good yeah this is kind of his foray which we kind of see again in the beta test uh, this is kind of his foray into like genre filmmaking and, yes you know how can he blend his style and that approach to kind of you know the the humor meets the darkness and blend that in with kind of genre staples. Mm-hmm. You know, this is a story about a sleepy little mountain town that gets nothing ever happens there, yeah. and then it starts getting terrorized by a mysterious wolf killer person. Yeah. yeah, reports are that it's a werewolf killing these young women. Yeah, and Jim Cummings' character, I think it's just named John. I yeah, think it's John. I mean, he's the only one who just believes that it's it can't be a fucking werewolf. Werewolves don't fucking exist. We have to yeah. make sure. And then things just keep getting worse and worse and he gets more stressed. And it's basically taking a lot of the 
elements of Thunder Road, but yeah, putting it in a genre and putting it in a fun yeah. genre in, in a, a way I, that yeah. I mean, I I think it's astounding uh, that this is a probably one of my favorite werewolf films <laughs> the last few years. I mean, last year we also got Werewolves Within, which is really fun, but uh-huh. um, but like of all for the last couple of years in terms of werewolf films, I love how this is like one of my favorite werewolf films, and there is not a real werewolf. Right. It's yeah. genuinely a tall dude, a tall weird dude in a mask and suit, <laughs> which is great cuz yeah. like I was caught off guard by that cuz I thought they were going to go with oh, it's it's low budget enough and they're shooting it well enough that they can actually Hide do a monster. werewolf in a mask yeah. in, in a suit. And then it's like no, it's that's a big proponent. It actually is just a suit. Yeah. Which is great. That's such a the ending is so good. And I think everything leading up to, because like to me, the thing about Wolf, the Wolf of Snow Hollow that I liked a lot is like, throughout the majority of the film, I was like, ah, oh, this is really good, but I don't think I like it as much as Thunder Road, which I still don't. But at the same time, as it got closer and closer to the ending, I loved the little bits that they chose. Uh-huh. I loved the little development all the way up to the end where it's like, God damn, that's such a good reveal. <laughs> All, and then like yeah, the, that reveal is yeah. really good. And then we have a bit of an epilogue that also shows that you know, a lot of the choices that should have been made, he made a lot of mature deso- like decisions. Yeah, and is and is growing and is doing better. And it's something that you, if you love Thunder Road like we do, it's something that you'd like to see his characters actually move on and get better, <laughs> and at least actually see some of that. Yeah, but I mean, yeah, it's it's again with the Wolf of Snow Hollow, you just get. A great performance from Cummings. Forrester does a really good job. Lindhorn, I would say, is a bit underutilized, but I think what she is given, she is good at. And mm-hmm. she's a great foil to Cummings when Cummings is like just growing, just like tearing him tearing himself apart internally and just making worse decisions as it goes on. Yeah. And ah oh, man, it's it, it, it's again, you would assume there could be a sophomore slump with something like After Thunder Road, but no, I don't think there's really much of a slump. Right, it's just yeah. very, very strong, and I think it's a good, it's a good Christmassy horror film to a degree in terms of it's, it's just like because it's just snowy. Yeah, They're in a snowy yeah. place, and it's, I mean, yeah, he, he, it's nice and it's cool. It's in, cool and impressive to see him after you know Thunder Road kind of take a stab at genre filmmaking. Yes, and do that genre justice while also, you know, making it his own kind of movie and Mm -hmm. being more than that. Um, and also being kind of a, yeah, just kind of a refreshingly weird version of those kind of genre tenets that we're used to. Yeah. And when it, when it needs to be creepy or it needs to just, yeah, when it needs to really catch your eye, it does it extremely well. Yeah. And yeah, well, there's there's a way in which not narratively in a literal sense, but like there's a way in which you could basically view this movie as if his character from Thunder Road was in a werewolf movie. Like he, yeah, he is very much kind of the same character. And you know, I guess if you wanted, you could call that a, a criticism, but I don't mean it that way. No, um, it just but, shows but he knows it he... is kind of he's a he's a maladjusted cop who's yeah. you know kind of. Uh, beholden to these sort of patriarchal uh you know uh, norms that he subscribes to and has has you know had fed on to him with his his father being the chief of police and mm-hmm. thinking that he has to has to take on that role and do it all himself and that sort of thing um but it, it's kind of that same internal drama just 
with the backdrop of a werewolf murder spree in yeah. a small town. It's like Yeah, it's 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 a stressed out cop who's trying to improve himself while also having a strained relationship with his ex-wife, his daughter, and all the stuff that's surrounding him is just getting is just slipping out of his hands every yeah. time he tries to get a hold of it, which again is the character in Thunder Road, but this time it's a little it's just different enough to feel to feel unique and it's about a werewolf. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. about a wolf. And it's oh man. I mean I, I think it was really important to definitely have Forrester in there just because it just shows a lot of the impact of yeah, losing I mean, it, it's fascinating too because it also has that kind of similarity with Thunder Road where it's like he was overshadowed by just how good his dad was as a cop. Yeah. And when he loses his dad, not only is the grief already just a, too much to bear just at the get-go, but it's also like now there's nothing basically shadowing him. Now he has to either pick up that mantle right. and or just completely fall out of – yeah, fall into obscurity. And I think it's – again, it's another situation where he just does not handle that well – at all, character-wise, and that's and that's great to watch, but also is sad as shit. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, just him getting, him trying to stay sober while also just not being sober and getting drunk and passing out in his father's office <laughs> overnight and trying to find his jacket so he can like wear his dad's jacket. And it's yeah. like, it makes it even sadder too the fact that it's Forrester's last film because Forrester's a great actor and he's playing yeah. and he's playing a character that is just as stubborn as his son. But is is on death's door, <laughs> while as his son is just stubborn and is just acting like as if he's on death's door. And then when he's seen when he's seen death, and and for like just in front of him, and is like, oh God, do I do I want that personally for myself? That's when it becomes yeah. real sad for a good chunk. But thankfully, it I think turns back around exactly when it needs to, <laughs> and is done, uh, and, and shows again too that. I think there's something that it doesn't show in Thunder Road per se, but I, I'm glad they do it this time where it shows that like he is genuinely a good cop. Yeah. He's not bad at his job. He actually does a lot of research. He catches a lot of things that he, even like more seasoned professionals probably wouldn't have in that yeah. regard in terms of like the taxidermy tools, which was like a big thing. The only reason why right. they knew about that is because he was the only one who was thinking that's like someone who has those kind of tools could do that. Yeah, yeah. And if if it wasn't for him bringing that up once, <laughs> they probably wouldn't be able to find the guy. Yeah. And but even then, it's he's he has, gosh, it's just so. Did we mention Jimmy Tatro's in this movie? Oh, we have not brought up uh, Jimmy Tatro of American Vandal fame, <laughs> Bad Education fame, yeah. YouTube fame, which now I think he's full blown. I think he has, or at least he did have a TV show. On mm, is it, it was ABC, I think, with Topher Grace. Oh, uh, yeah. But like, yeah, Jimmy Tatro, who I think is over time become just a very fascinating guy to watch, just because the projects he's been getting and how well done he's been. Again, he's I think in the same boat and comings to a degree in terms of acting wise. He knows exactly what his range is. Yeah, and yeah. doesn't overstep. Yeah, and he, he's. He fits a certain type of character although i think this is maybe the only thing i've seen him in where he's not really asked to be funny he's he's not really a center point of comedy at any point in this movie yeah no yeah he's kind of the the lone surviving victim 
of mm-hmm. sort the of first, these, the first the first kill yeah wolf yeah. attacks or murders mm-hmm. i mean it, honestly the only funny thing about him is that he i mean it, it's it's a it's a sight gag but it's the fact that like they're in a bar in like a podunk snowy town and they're both drinking like chardonnay yeah well everyone else wearing is their like beer. cable knit sweaters and yeah. stuff yeah they're clearly like out of towners yeah they're, they're clearly or at least he's like the out-of-town boyfriend coming in to see the, yeah. the girlfriend's hometown and fucking drinking chardonnay and like a dive bar yeah and that was like a yeah but that was about as goofy but as he it doesn't have him. like comedy bits per se yeah he's, which is he's interesting just, to see because he he usually yeah. does because mm-hmm. he's a really funny person. And there's, there's, I mean, there's a great moment too where they go to him to talk to him about just the whole situation in general, and he plays the the grieving boyfriend that also just wants to fucking get over, just being asked the same questions over and over again, extremely yeah. well. He only, I mean, he has a small part, but I think every time he shows up, he does a good job with it. Yeah. And ah, uh, man, it makes it only makes me more bummed out when I see him that. Even though he was only in the first season, American Vandal only got two seasons. Yeah. That's a show that I would just love to see. How do you make the show go for 10? I don't know if I need to see <laughs> it for 10, but if they had to, how could they do it? Um, but yeah, Wolf of Snow Hollow is a very is a really good follow-up to Thunder Road. And I think it shows that, you know, um, Cummings doesn't have to do sad dra- comedy dramas. He doesn't have to do comedy dramas his whole life. He can. Yeah. He can. He's very malleable, and he can definitely just like is very flexible with how he handles genre and how he handles his own talents and kind yeah. of his own range. Yeah, I mean, for for a second ever feature film uh, to be <laughs> like a a werewolf cop thriller uh, was a heck of a choice. Oh, it's and, so good, and he does it really well, and and clearly i think enjoys playing in those genre sandboxes which is why his third film is kind of another genre film Mm -hmm. a different genre entirely um, (laughs) vastly different kind of the psychological thriller yeah we we uh, go beta test we go from uh comedy drama to kind of horror mystery to (laughs) the best way to put it is erotic thriller yeah it's an erotic it's, yeah. a, it's an erotic thriller that is made by the guy who did thunder road and wolf of snow hollow it's someone I, I mean i i remember seeing this on reddit in terms of like someone seeing the trailer or something like that and it might have been just a cummings quote in itself just like an offhand comment or something but it's someone called it like jim cummings's take on eyes wide shut yeah and it's hard not to watch this and be like god i'd see that yeah that's not a bad way to sell this film to somebody yeah but it is also kind of funny to a degree that if you say like oh it's like a an erotic thriller comedy it technically is in the same quote-unquote genre building as like showgirls yeah but it shows how fucking wild genres can be when you kind of mix like that and it is nowhere near it's not bad like showgirls or so bad it's good like showgirls in my opinion the beta test might be the most fascinating out of the three of these films because of what just, Cummings is trying to do. Yeah, there is so There's much so many in the different film. angles to it. Yeah, the film is. It, there are times even where the film kind of gave me vibes of. I mean, you can also say whether or not you agree with this because you've seen the whole film. But from what I've seen of Mulholland Drive, just some of the conversations that are had that feels like this isn't what people would have an actual <laughs> conversation with, but it feels like it fits to what. 
the narrative is trying to say, yeah. what the what the kind of the the thematic elements are to the narrative itself. Yeah, there is and, kind of a not to invoke an overused term, but kind of a little bit of a Lynchian quality to this movie. And I think yeah. you you articulated that well with the yeah. There are a lot of character exchanges or exchanges where it's like I don't really know that that's actually how that would play out but it works yeah. for the moment that they're creating and and it's just a little bit surreal at times i don't think yeah. it gets as you know ridiculous and out of left field as no. a lot of lynch's movies especially Not, no one Drive. really can there's only like one other film that i felt like has kind of gotten to that point and even then it and, and it took me a while to be like yeah, this is kind of what that film was trying to do. Well, as with this, I feel like it's enough of an air, enough of a fragrance of Lynch. Yeah, no, a little bit of a spritz of Lynch yeah. in the narrative where it's like, oh, I see exactly what he's trying to do, but I'm not racking my brain as to what he's trying to say. Because yeah, but it, yeah, I do think though it probably has more in common with yeah, like erotic thrillers and psychological thrillers, conspiracy movies. Um, yeah, it's got a little bit of it, uh, what's I, the. Sharon Stone movie, Basic Instinct. Yeah, yeah, it, it has probably air of airs of like Fatal Attraction, Basic yes, Instinct, yeah. but Eyes Wide Shut is definitely a, one of the reasons why it's kind of a good way to describe it is like the narrative is basically in, in a Hollywood agent <laughs> gets a letter for an anonymous sexual encounter. He yeah. just basically has to put what his kinks are, what he dislikes. If he puts it in the mail. They, they set up a time and a place. You walk in, you go in blindfolded, you have sex with that person, and then it's over with. And he he initially is like, I don't want to do this because he's he's newly engaged and he's yeah. about to get married in a couple months. Yeah. And But, it, of course, he can't say no to it because it's just like there's something so – oh just like – again, there's something so arousing to him about just like something like almost as dangerous as this – so he goes ahead with it, he does it, and he literally just can't stop thinking about how it could ruin his life, yeah, ultimately kinda, leading him to kind of ruin his own life. He's basically, yeah, ripped apart by paranoia Yes, over what he's done. It's yeah. kind of a telltale heart mm-hmm. situation. And believes there is a huge conspiracy surrounding the Purple Letters, so he goes extremely far to try and figure out where they come from, <laughs> why they went to him, what is going on, and it leads to... A film that that is a I mean that is the main plot, but there is a lot more going on around it. And thematically, yeah. the the execution of certain themes is also fascinating because one of the biggest things that I would say is the most Lynchian, I guess, out of all the thematic elements and the execution is the connection of like uh, sexual energy or arousal to like our primal nature. Yeah, where it's like there's there's just so many times where it's like in the film there are sexual moments or there are like moments of just like people talking about they're loving each other and whatnot. But when it's like just raw animal magnetism, like where it's like you think someone's hot from across the room, they I mean Cummings and McCabe because P J McCabe also co-wrote and co-directed yeah. this film yeah. with Cummings, who is. He also plays uh, Cummings' as best friend in this yeah. film and does a really good job and so, as the best friend. I thought about, I think uh, Jim Cummings' character in Halloween Kills, the cop who gets shot through the throat. I think his name is McCabe. His name is McCabe. I think so his name I think is McCabe. Yeah. yeah. Homage to his friend. Yeah, I, I wouldn't be surprised if they were friends around the time that he moved. Yeah. And I then mean, they became, because I think a lot, because I also think, 
I guess it might be another tie. I'm pretty sure PJ McCabe has a has a minimal reoccurring role in American Vandal, but I know he's in American Vandal. Oh, okay. So and I and I think Cummings knows the the people who or like one of the creators of that show. Oh, okay. Yeah, it could be a, a lot of Jimmy a lot of Tatro connection. Yeah, a little six degrees of Jim Cummings over here, just <laughs> how you get to that and whatnot. Yeah. But yeah, Cummings is uh, it's he does Cummings and McCabe in this just do anytime there's just like this just this raw sexual energy where it's just like it is portrayed with animal noises and it sounds goofy, but it's handled in a way that feels yeah, well, it is natural goofy, enough. But I mean, it's yes. also it's also kind of fast. Just it, fascinating enough that you're it like, works. okay, wow. Yeah, it's strangely what works. What is happening, yeah. Yeah, because, I mean, I, a good way that this is shown, there, there are two ways that I think this is shown where I think one is extremely goofy, but it gets the point across. And one that I think is a bit more subtle, but I think I would say works a lot better. And the first one is when he's at dinner with his fiance and uh, his friend, his friend's wife, and he sees this hot chick across the room, <laughs> and then he has like a... Basically, just a daydream about her just going full. She gets up full from the primal. table and screams and like. Yeah, it's basically just it about like to run at vomit. him and pounce him. Yeah, and he's also kind of feeling that energy, but it's not fully. It's not as crazy as her. He's like yeah. trying to keep the beast within per se. Yeah, and then later on in the film, he goes to a cabin with his uh, fiance because they're trying to figure out what the fuck is going on because his fiance is like he's just getting being, really distant yeah and... he's being super weird and it's like no I'm fine and it's obviously he's a liar yeah <laughs> but they have sex in front of a fireplace you know beautiful scene of course but when they start it's to shot be like the cover of an erotic novel it is like... it absolutely is but once they start being more comfortable with one another it goes from like standard Hollywood sex scene to like something more primal and the noises can become more animalistic. It yeah, feels more like growling at each other and yeah, screaming. Just, and doing a good shot of being like how, how sex, like how very animalistic and how, how like animal kind of the primal aspect is very, is innately tied to our yeah, sexual, sexual like, yeah, our yeah. sexual drive and our sex drive in general. Yeah. And, it is wild to see that in the film and just be like, well, that was hilarious, but also I love how that was done. <laughs> yeah. Because again, that's, it's it immediately just... followed up by a still shot of them sitting artistically oh, spooning next, to, next the fire. to the fireplace. Everything's fine now. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and I mean, it's another thing too. Uh, never, I never thought about this until this film because it, it, this film is unrated, I think. I think it still does oh, not yeah. have a rating to it. At least on IMDb, it says it's unrated. <laughs> and I hope it's not because of this. It would be hilarious if it was, but it's the first time I've ever seen someone be sat on. Oh, yeah. Like like, 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 a fi- like a face-sitting scene. I did yeah. not. I've never seen that in a film. <laughs> and I thought, like, wow, he's going full-blown. Not only is he going full force in terms of, like, showing kind of more kinky sex, he also... He shows. He goes he full. He goes full peen. nude. He goes full peen. nude. It's a very and shaded peen. Still, you see it there. and you go, "Wow, Cummings is going for it." Yeah. Now, if that's a prosthetic, that's fine. You know, Euphoria does it all the time. We can't yeah. really blame him. It's okay. But if it's not, there's some respect there that yeah. I have to acknowledge. <laughs> hey, full support of Eric Dane's fake penis in Euphoria. I <laughs> uh, can I take. Uh, Sentences I didn't expect Andy to say on the podcast <laughs> for uh, 400, please. <laughs> but you know what? He's not wrong. Yeah. 
Um, but yeah, the beta test just overall is saying so much. And again, I think it's, that's what, one of the reasons why a lot of people would say it's his weakest because it's there's trying a lot being for so said. many things. Yeah. Yes. I, I think, although I think it's also his funniest movie. I yes. Mean, I, I think I'm going to say this and normally it would be, you know, a dig at a movie for me to say this, but I mean this in a positive way. It's, the script is kind of Sorkin-esque in a lot of moments where it's just, it's coming so fast. It's saying so many things. Yeah, because he's a Hollywood agent. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He's a very quick kind of thinker and talker and kind of, well, he almost talks faster than he can think. Mm -hmm. Um, And there's just a lot of layers about, you know, talking about, you know, kind of capitalist greed and the, the kind of ridiculous nature of Hollywood marketing and, and all the bullshit that comes with that. Um, And he's also kind of, constantly exposing truths about himself without realizing it kind of like in the previous two movies mm-hmm. um so it's just a very dense script and a lot yeah. of a lot of things happening in every minute and honestly I- i've seen this twice now and there were there are so many moments where it's like i was on the second viewing i was able to kind of because I knew what was going on, I could listen to the background dialogue. And the, mm-hmm. even the background dialogue is, like, hilarious and specific and really well-written. It's not yeah. just, like, filler. It's, like, actually adding to the kind of thematic mm-hmm. continuity of the movie. And it's like, wow, there's a lot going on here. Yeah, And I think it is a, it shows that I'm glad that PJ McCabe is helping out. I mean, I'm glad they're helping each other out, mainly because I think it does help to kind of have another person there to flesh that more flesh that out yeah, too yeah because yeah, both in wolf and thunder road there is not a lot of that in terms of the amount of depth in terms of you know conversations happening on the background or just right. the amount of them themes they're dealing with and also the fact that like one of the big things that they talk about in the film which is i think a, a big insider baseball thing unless you're <laughs> unless you're an actor and you kind of i mean it is the fact that like Hollywood agents are becoming extinct, and if they already aren't considered extinct, right? Everybody how... kind of hates them. <laughs> yeah, like I think because like the whole merger that they're discussing in the film is actually kind of based on a genuine merger. I think that's going on right now. If it already hasn't gone through, yeah. that just like it seems like anyone who's in the st- who is in the studio system who has seen the film and writes reviews and whatnot, it seems a lot of people like just like that take on it. When it's yeah. like, yeah, hell yeah, go for it, Jim. And it wouldn't surprise that Jim has that take, considering yeah. well, and we're all in, he's been through. We're in kind of this this stage, you know, post Me Too movement, and this this point in kind of you know late stage capitalism, if you will, where you know, kind of the the more uh, scum sucky, parasitic uh, mm-hmm. aspects of the the marketing world and the advertising world. Um, they're having to find new ways to kind of reinvent themselves and re, as they say in this movie, repackage things to be mm-hmm. more appealing yeah. and, and be useful in different ways. And this movie's kind of, you know, constantly poking fun at that and poking holes in that. There um, was definitely really certain, there was, there was just a lot of shit that Cummings was spouting out as his character where it's just like, it had the same air of like, certain lines in Matrix Resurrections where it's like, this just feels like Cummings has been thrown at... He's been thrown this. Yeah. Or yeah. McCabe has been thrown something like this as well. Yeah. Because it feels way too specific it's and way pointed. too real. It's definitely pointed. Yeah, and way too, like, like he's executed. He's had to deal with this, or he's yeah. seen people have to deal with mm-hmm. this and is fed up with it. 
And I, I, would, I would also agree with you that it, this is probably his funniest film because, I mean, to me, when I think of Thunder Road and the stuff that makes me laugh or at least catches my eye, it is when just uh, Jim just stops mid-sentence of whatever he's talking about in, like, an emotional scene and just starts making, like, a cry face but can't cry. And so, or, like, he's, or where he's, like, yeah. doing that cry face and then stops it immediately yes. to move on to another thought. Yes. And it's with like, Wolf of Snow Hollow, it's a lot of the writing yeah. where it's like, God, the, the, I mean, the line in Wolf of Snow Hollow that gets me every time is where he just goes, like, shut up, shut up. Why can't I be right? Why can't I just not be right this time? <laughs> yeah. Or, like, or later on in the film where, like, I think one of his cops leaks something to the press. And so he's like, hey, can, can you come over here for a second? And he takes him to the woods and just starts beating the shit out of him like <laughs> punching him in the snow and it's like what the hell is going on but yeah. with the beta test the man there his relationship with his uh assistant is just so funny on a is on such a level that when he just says her name where Jacqueline. he says like Jacqueline. Jacqueline 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 he just says it in so many different ways how are you gonna come, come in tomorrow so yes. that I know that you're serious. One of the greatest, one of the best, there are two great moments in this film that will stick in my brain, which is he assumes at one point that uh, his assistant has, like, said something about his wife sitting on his face. Well, yeah, it's his, and, like, paranoia. Yeah, his paranoia probably. is kicking in, and he thinks Jacqueline knows about the letter. <laughs> and so he confronts Jacqueline, but doesn't want to say what she said, because she obviously didn't say it. And he knows, but he has to make sure because of paranoia. Yeah. And so when she starts pushing back, he just goes full force into just tearing her apart. Yeah. And it's tearing rough. Four young girls. Yeah. Yeah, young women's. And but world it's apart. so funny because it's just like wild as hell. And then later on in the film, he calls kind of like an old flame from high school, thinking that she might be the one that he had sex with in that hotel room, and she's just yeah. lying to him. And when it awkwardly, when it goes horribly wrong in terms of like being so awkward, she's obviously not going to forget that conversation in the future. He throws his phone through his door, yeah. realizes Jacqueline's still in the office and says, Jacqueline, good that I caught you. <laughs> he just goes right into talking to him, her like it's like a normal day, yeah. even though it's at night and there are no lights on. I'm going to pay for that. Oh, God. It's just, it's so, even at the very end when he has his, Again, very, very reminiscent to his um, <laughs> breakdown in the, in the police parking lot. Him being in a parking garage, just like yelling and just dealing with all of the unfiltered shit he's yeah. been dealing with. To the point where it's like I completely forgot about certain things because of just how much had happened. Where it's like early on in the film, there's a possible client that, I mean, assaults him. Basically, like grabs grabs him like... Yeah. Like, assaults him in a way that honestly, I mean, happened to Car Terry Crews and his ex-agent. Right. And it's like, you don't think about it because it's handled so, it's handled like, oh, God, oh, that's weird. And he just, and Jim just like, like, uh, shakes it off and laughs it off. But then later in the film, <laughs> he just yells about it and he looks like he's about to cry. Cause he's like, yeah. I can't believe that fucking happened. Yeah. <laughs> Nobody cares. Nobody cares. Because I'm a guy and he just, he's just throwing all of this yeah. shit out in the wind. And yeah, he kind of, there's moments like that where you kind of, you can tell that this is once again kind of fitting that same archetype of his previous two uh, protagonist characters in that he's, you know, a dude kind of crippled by mm -hmm. the, the kind of, I don't know, patriarchal mold that he's tried to 
force himself into the, yeah. the hole that he's tried to fill with. Okay, um, I'm not going there. Um, but he, no, no, he's, yeah. he's yeah, he, he's kind of broken by the system that he's forced himself to follow. To, to get another situation where he sees like he's like as a, he's like I'm a man, I should hold this in, but right, n- yeah. no, I should not be holding this in because I'm still a person and that's not okay. Yeah, and. But he's like, but that's not even the biggest worry of, for him, <laughs> because honestly, one of my favorite parts I would consider probably the best part of the film for me yeah. is the angle in the film that kind of brings a ticking clock to the situation, where you find out that a lot of the people that you've been seeing throughout the film, including the prologue, which is a bunch of, is like a couple you've never seen before, but alludes to what the worst case scenario is, which is basically. People who have gotten letters in the past have been found out and their spouses have been killing them. Right, yeah. And like not just like, you know, it, and it's all different ways. In the in the prologue, there's a woman that obviously got the letter and is trying to leave her husband because she's not happy with him. And she and he ultimately just stabs her to death, which yeah. is jarring and just harrowing as shit to watch. Yeah. It's like, what the fuck? And then later you get a woman who poisons her husband get a woman who shoots her husband and then you just kind of realize oh fuck he's gonna find out all these things and he's gonna be worried that his wife his fiance is gonna do this to him but what's so well done is that mccabe and cummings basically i mean i know this has gotten a bit of a a little bit of a sting to it now this phrase but subverts your expectations by instead of him basically just accepting that he's going to die and just telling his fiance everything, his fiance forgives him because he realizes that she also got a letter and also went through with it. And she's also been dealing with that same guilt at the same time. And it's also kind of implied that a lot of her performance is almost done in a way where she thinks he is, he's mad at her and waiting for him to kill her. Right. And so it's well, like... even if she hasn't thought that far into it, I think she's waiting for him. Like, she thinks that his distance is him suspecting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And even at the... I mean, like, and when she finds out, hilariously enough, and in a, in a fucked up way, because that's kind of what this film is, is yeah. like hilarious in a fucked up way, is like Cummings just... His character just stops in his tracks, and then you see him get full, again, just go primal. As he gets closer and closer to his wife, and you don't know if what he's going he to do? hug her yeah. or stab her, and then it just hard cuts, yeah. and you don't know what happened, but then you find out they're okay, yeah. and I mean, again, there's one thing at the very end of this film where you see a shot of uh, his his fiance holding her stomach, and I mean, you said you think it's because it's implying that she's pregnant. she's pregnant. Yeah. But at the same time, there could also be an angle where it's like he did stab her, <laughs> <laughs> and they were able to talk it out afterwards, <laughs> which would be so fucked up. But it would also be perfect yeah. that they're they're perfect for each other like that. Yeah. Where it's like they both have made mistakes, and they both haven't been completely honest with one another, but. They know things are only going to get worse, and the only way they can kind of deal with that is if they stick together and kind of learn as a couple. Which is honestly, again, similar to Wolf of Snow Hollow, did not expect an ending like that. And I'm so glad that it takes those turns when it does. Them against 
a world that wants them to cheat on each other. <laughs> a, a world a, a world that just basically wants the quote-unquote elite, because it's not even just the elite, it's also people who are pretending to be the elite. Right, yeah. Kill, like <laughs> kill each other. Basically, survival yeah. of the fittest with the upper class, the 1%. And it is wild what they're trying to do, because like all of that is in one film, and all of that is in a film that is barely over 90 minutes. Yeah. Which is a lot, I would say that's a lot to handle with two and a half hours. Yeah. So it's like, not only is it able to handle all those topics, but still kind of have a conclusion that feels satisfactory, but is able to, I would say out of all three of these films, be the one that I would say is the most rewatchable just because there is definitely things that aren't caught. Yeah. Like you said on that first viewing. Just because it's so dense. Oh, yeah. It's it's such a it's such a fun movie, but also because it's it's again, it's a fun film in an erotic thriller sense. If you've seen something like Basic Instinct, and Fatal Attraction, or even Eyes Wide Shut, because I would even think it's not even as artsy as Eyes Wide Shut. It's not no, even it's, as long as Eyes Wide Shut. Definitely but not going for that kind of cerebral yeah type thing. But it's there are moments, yeah. But there are moments where it's like definitely trying to pick the brain of like. You know what is this? What is this thing? What do you think about with this? And yeah. what? How does this sound to you? And and all the thematic elements and the narrative itself, for a third film again, in the span of three years, the man has made a trio of films that are equally interesting on their own accord, but in vastly different ways. Yeah. Where I think in Thunder Road it is really simplistic and really straightforward, but what's more interesting about it is the approach to everything. From the performances, from the directing, the cinematography, the editing choices. Right. He even does the music for Thunder Road. Yeah. He, he did the score for it. And I don't know if he did the score for this or for the other two films, for Wolf and Beta. But, like, it just shows that, I mean, overall, Jim Cummings is just fucking fascinating. He is, yeah. he is, he is a guy that, like, I think he's pretty much established in some way, shape, or form. Just in interviews that, like, he likes what he's doing right now. Yeah. And until he can't, very until... interested in like kind of seeing how far he can push that, this experiment that he's mm-hmm. been doing over three movies. Cause like yeah. with, with the beta test, he did kind of a new form of crowdfunding with it. Where basically mm-hmm. like the people who invest in the movie kind of share the movie or own yeah. the movie in equal parts, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think he's, he's very intrigued by that rather than, like, the studio system, which he yeah. got a little bit of a taste of with Snow Hollow. Yeah. Um, and also the fact that it's, like, he is being seen by Hollywood to a degree yeah. because the fact that it's it's very clear that the only reason why he's in Halloween Kills is because either David Gordon Green or Danny McBride or both of them just really like his stuff and like his style and like, you know, yeah. hey, we could put this guy in here. It'd be yeah. a fun time. And I think it was, like, a day or two of shooting. Like it wasn't <laughs> that much time for Cummings to do that. Yeah. And I think, I think it, oh, go ahead. no, I think he's perfect in Halloween kills yeah. for his small amount of screen time. <laughs> yeah. I love the yeah. amount of seriousness he brings right. to that role in such a silly film. Yeah. <laughs> I think it'd be cool to see, you know, if, if he can kind of continue what he's doing in terms of, you know, behind the camera with, with these three films and kind of making those, uh, you know, independently or crowd crowdfunded or, or however he he is able to do it and kind of push that experiment while also maybe, you know, popping up here and there more often in 
Hollywood movies or bigger movies and kind of, mm-hmm. you know, I think I think the prospect of him being in a movie that's made by somebody else is an interesting prospect to me because mm-hmm. I haven't, you know, I've not seen him act outside of that Halloween Kills um, scene. For, yeah, for, no, yeah. For he's anybody he's but had himself. other acting roles, but I think it is in mostly, mostly shorts. Short films, yeah. yeah, which yeah. are obviously probably, probably shorts that his friends made yeah, and right. would make the most sense, but... Yeah, I mean, I I mean I said it during I think it was during the beta test. It was it was it was a good joke to a degree, but also if this happened, I would shit myself. <laughs> yeah. Where um, if if they're casting someone for the Fantastic Four MCU film, and you know they don't want to do Raul Coley, they don't want to do something completely do the diversity. If, pick. They, yeah, they, they if, insist on a white Reed Richards. Yeah, if they don't want to actually kind of expand yeah. to like any kind of actor, they just want to do like oh, we want to do. Nuclear family, white as toast, you yeah. know, Reed Richards. Ah, Jim Cummings as Reed Richards would be fascinating. Yeah. I don't I don't think he would do it at all, even if he was offered to it, mainly because it's like he did, that would be the least amount of creative control he'd yeah. ever have, probably. He but. did put out a tweet a little while back. Some I think somebody asked him about if he would do a superhero movie, and he was like, yeah, I'm, I'm not gonna like balk at that concept. I I would make a 390 minute superhero, <laughs> or 390 Fuck, minute yes. Marvel movie. Oh my god, I mean, I would again. I would be one of those things where I would love to see him. It'd be fun to see him act more. I think it would be yeah. that would be a fun yeah. step too because I think it'd be fun to see him act more as well as see like if his later films onward are gonna have a similar characteristic have leads that have similar characteristics as his lead performances. Yeah. In his first three films, because yeah. it's like, if that's if they are. The question is, how long can you keep doing a, a kind of a character like that? Right. And who knows? And honestly, I would love to see where he goes from here. And I'm excited oh, to see yeah. where he goes from here because it's. It just he, seems like he's only picking up steam. So. Yeah, I mean, to a degree, kind of like Chloe Zhao. It's like he's so early on in his career. Yeah. Like he, he could he could go anywhere with this. I think. And this is probably the the most ahead of the curve we've been with a rise of episode yeah, but in, I th- in that he's still, you know, still very much an up and comer. Yeah, just, and just like the, a three-year span. Yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, you can say, you can even say six years to a degree if we're talking about the fact of like his short getting yeah, like right. the notoriety. But even then it's like, it's, it's, it's one of those things where as again, both guys who, who tend to, try to pride themselves or try to be up to date in terms of all things films rather not just Marvel films, not just blockbusters or studio stuff, more independent stuff as well. It was kind of a nice surprise and also kind of made me love hearing about, you know, Thunder Road's love in 2018 and 2019 and also just kind of seeing the Wolf of Snow Hollow. I think seeing the first trailer not knowing it was Cummings until I saw him. Oh, yeah. And I, and I think it says a lot, too, the fact that, like, I didn't say this early on in the episode, but this is the first time I've seen all three of these films. Andy had already seen all three of these films right. prior. And even before seeing all these films, for the last few years, if you asked me who Jim Cummings was, I mean, again, I would say, first I would say he's Winnie the, the voice actor that's literally in every kind of Disney thing you can think of. Yeah. Winnie the Pooh. Darkwing Duck, he's all over the place. And then after that, I'd say, oh, he's the 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 director, actor, writer, producer that is just killing it post Thunder Road. Mm-hmm. E- before even seeing his stuff, like he just like I think he has 
that kind of magnetism and energy to him that I would love to see more people jump onto his stuff. Right. And to be honest too, I, I think his, I think the beta test would, if I redid my kind of top 20 of 2021, I would definitely put it probably in there. Mm. Very high. I mean, like in the kind of in the 15s to 20s, maybe a little bit closer. Yeah. But like, I really just, the more after we watched the beta test, the more I just kept thinking about it and being like, my God, <laughs> there's just a lot here. Yeah. And I liked it, it thinking about it. It grew on me. It both Snow Hollow and yeah. beta test grew mm-hmm. on me on, with second viewings. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I would, again, if you made it this far and haven't seen any of their fil- his films, you know, definitely watch them all. Because, yeah. again, we can't really do it justice. It's, he's one of those types of filmmakers where, like, yes, we can talk about his execution, he has his a cinematography. He has a very singular voice. And yeah. It's, it's hard to describe mm-hmm. a filmmaker's voice without just seeing it. Absolutely. You know? he's He is... Uh, Especially as early as he is in his career. Absolutely. And, again, Marvel, Feige, if you're listening to us, I'm flattered. Thank you for listening to us. But... What's up, Kevin? Hashtag, hashtag Cummings for Richards. <laughs> I, I, I would, I still would push harder for Raul Coley, but I mean, I would love uh, the if fact he's that he's too busy doing Flanagan stuff. Then yeah, I mean, call I, Jim Cummings. I love the idea that like Raul Coley is aware of that casting, like that fan <laughs> casting, and he just a hundred percent. It's like that and Ezra from Rebels, like yeah. putting him as like older Ezra, and he's just like completely putting all of his chips in, being like, yeah. You mean do the Simu Liu? Totally shameless with it. Yeah, yeah. do do the Simu effect and like listen to all my tweets and bring me mm-hmm. in. And then I think if like but if Jim also... Cummings even got an inkling, he would just be so he'd probably be very humble about it. Maybe be be embarrassed that people yeah. were talking about yeah, it. Yeah, I don't I don't know if you want me to do this. Um, He's like, you sure? Raul Coley would be like, I'll do it, but you better be prepared that I'm gonna say bussy in a Marvel movie. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, but. Yeah, that is the rise of Jim Cummings, or as Andy would probably put it, if he wasn't too afraid to put it on the design itself, the rise Coward. of Cummings. Yeah. <laughs> we recommend all three films. We're excited Absolutely. to be back, and now it is time to talk about what we're doing next. Mm-hmm. We thought, you know, after doing the Matrix sequels and, you know, doing the rise of Cummings, you know, we thought it would be fun to do something that is a more straightforward trilogy, you know. There's only three films in the trilogy. It's, you know, it is it, technically a series. It is technically a series. They're not an obvious or numbered series mm-hmm. and nobody expected them to be a series. There, there is a huge <laughs> gap between the first and second film, but overall is pretty much now watching it, it's going to be clear of just like yeah, it's a first, second, and third film. Yeah. Uh we are going to be doing which would be what's February is it the 26th? Yes. I think so because yes. yeah, the 26th. On the 26th, we will be releasing our episode on M. Night Shyamalan's East Rail 177 trilogy, or as you might better know it, is the Unbreakable trilogy. Yeah. We're not, doing. Not to be confused with the documentary series on trains and railroad transportation. No, 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 no. This is. This is probably the only M. Night Shyamalan trilogy we'll ever get in his career because I think the man just loves doing one offs. Yeah. At least, except for this. And this and is kind of a backdoor trilogy. Yes, because the middle one was... The middle film, which all three of these films, in case you don't know, are 2000's Unbreakable, 2016's Split, and 2019's Glass. Yeah. And 2016's Split had uh, 
kind of had that Shyamalan kind of twist ending, but had two twist endings. We won't say what the first one was, but the second one is was that it was basically a a secret sequel to Unbreakable. Yeah, a tie, and basically it's made M Night made like his own like you know Marvel type like reveal. Yeah, and yeah, it's a trilogy that. It's going to be fascinating to talk about now because I don't think either one have you haven't seen Glass since we saw it together, right? Right, and I hated yeah. it. Yeah, I um, am not a fan I, of Glass either. I love Unbreakable. I have not seen it in years. Mm-hmm. I was more lukewarm on Split than I think most people were. I think more uh-huh. than you were. Um, yeah, and I hated Glass. So I'm interested to see how this goes for me. It'll be curious too, yeah, because it's like we we both saw Glass at a uh, early screening in January. It was like yeah, early January of 2019. Yeah. Um, because is it is it a Blumhouse production? Because like I think it was. I don't a, know. Because I, be. I think it was a big deal because a lot of people were in that theater yeah. for Glass. And uh, yeah, we haven't seen it in now three years. Yeah, it's been three years since Glass came out. God, I had just had to do the math. The there needs to be a pandemic calculator where you just like <laughs> whatever I think the amount is, add two to it. All right. But we're gonna be covering all three of the films, talking about kind of how weirdly ahead of the curve Shyamalan was with that first film, kind of how surprising that second film is, and also just if we're talking about three of. Oh, like similar to beta test, we're talking about a third film in a trilogy that is doing a lot. <laughs> yeah, we're going to talk about a lot about with Glass. So, tune in on the 26th when we talk about uh, M Night's I go on to East I, Rail 177 yeah. trilogy. As we do the M Night trilogy, the Unbreakable <laughs> trilogy, also known as East Rail 177. But of course, my name is Logan Sowash, and I'm Andy Carr. Thank you so much for listening. Bye.